Live from Chatterbox Sports Studios, it's Off the Bench with Tom Brenneman. Well, good morning, good morning, a pleasant good Wednesday morning to each and every one of you. We welcome you as always to Off the Bench, presented by United Dairy Farmers. I'm Tom Brenneman, as you may know or may not know. We come your way Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to noon. That's Eastern Time. You can find us a variety of different ways. We start, of course, as always, YouTube on the Chatterbox Sports page. And we ask, as always, you please subscribe to the program. We also stream on Facebook. That's a Chatterbox Sports page. And if you'd like to join us in podcast form, listen whenever you like. By all means, just search Off the Bench with Tom Brenneman and you are dialed in. Well, look, your new Villanova would show up. It's a proud program, having an off year under somebody that's not named Jay Wright. We also knew, also knew Xavier was still shorthanded due to injuries and illnesses. What we didn't know is that X would pretty much melt down in the second half after building a 10-point lead. From that point on, too many turnovers, too many three-point shot attempts, and virtually zero inside play against a smaller Villanova team. At the end of the day, the Wildcats win it by 164-63. The loss will more than likely mean no Big East regular season title in this Sean Miller's first year back. But is it the end of the world? Of course not. Next up for the Xavier Musketeers, a trip to Seton Hall. And that's a quick turnaround. That's Friday night at 7 o'clock. Elsewhere in the Big East Conference. What about Marquette and Creighton, Paul? Yeah, great win for Marquette. I mean, that's Marquette's really turned a corner this year from a team that was picked ninth in the preseason poll. Nobody thought they were going to be anything this year. And now they're filled with a bunch of guys that have two years left of eligibility. They could bring this whole team back for two more years, and they're going to win the Big East this year. The real deal, they get a huge win on the road. That is a big deal because Creighton yeah. is mighty to all those teams, Xavier yeah. included. All those teams are really tough to beat on their home floor. In the Big 12, seemingly big games are played every single night. You start with number 14, Kansas State, beating up number 9, Baylor in Manhattan, 75-65. Number 23, Iowa State, traveled to sixth-ranked Texas and got drilled by the Longhorns. Boy, they're playing well. 72-54, the final there. In the Big 10, number 18, Indiana, played it always tough Michigan State, and it proved to be tough. The Spartans lay out the Hoosiers 80-65 to in the ACC. 13th-ranked Miami continues to roll, winning at Virginia Tech 76-70. to The Hurricanes are now 23-5 on the year, and not many people talking about them. In College Station, upstart Texas A&M defeats number 11 Tennessee 68-63. The Aggies playing really well. They've ripped off six straight to move within one game of Alabama atop the conference. Tonight, UC returns to Fifth Third Arena to face Temple. The Owls beat the Bearcats in Philadelphia roughly three weeks ago. Now, this is a very important game for West Miller's team. They're tied for fourth right now with Temple. So a win, and you play out the rest of the schedule and play it well, it could mean a bye in the opening round of the American Conference Tournament. NBA news, the Atlanta Hawks of firehead coach Nate McMillan. Quinn Snyder is expected to take over. Snyder led Utah to six straight playoff appearances before stepping down a year ago. And in college football news, a day after losing his offensive coordinator to the Indianapolis Colts, 
UC head coach Scott Satterfield apparently has found a replacement. Virginia Tech passing game coordinator and quarterback coach Brad Glenn, the two coached together at Appalachian State. That was back in the heyday of App State when they knocked off Michigan. And the kick is blocked out of the hole to Mesco. There it is. Mm. <laughs> Classic. Appalachian State. All right, uh, we will talk with Paul Fritchner in just a little while about Xavier, where they are, where they're going. The game last night, I had a chance to listen to Joe Sunderman and Byron Larkin sitting there watching our son's lacrosse practice last night. And I told Paul a little while ago, we are lucky to have those two in the radio booth. That's a good team. They're up there somewhere. Yeah, they're great. They are really good. And and, and you know what? They call it like they see it. They were clearly upset with the way Xavier played last night talking about all the three-point shot attempts, uh, not taking advantage of, of their size on the interior with Nunji and Hunter. And so uh, it, was, it was great radio to listen to, and unfortunately the Muskies come away with a one-point loss. We're joined every Wednesday. Coming up later today, we will have Chris Sabo, former Reds Rookie of the Year and Reds Hall of Famer, to talk about his upbringing in Detroit, Michigan, and of course his playing career and what he's up to now. Playing a lot of golf, apparently. He shared that with our Hall of Fame broadcaster, Marty Brenneman. He's got on his uh, yellow pullover today. How many of those pullovers do you think in total you have? Any guess? You walk into the closet, is there like 40 of them against a wall in the closet or something? To begin with, you got to get a more expensive television or monitor. This is white as a driven snow. It's not yellow. Does it look white uh, to you guys? I mean, I see now. Obviously, you're working with cheap equipment. <laughs> um, this is white. And I would hesitate to say how many I have. I have, and it's it's a fluid thing because I'm constantly adding to it. Either I'm buying something or Amanda's buying something. So I just like them, and I can pretty much wear them almost year-round, rather than whether it's uh, – with the exception of the summertime, obviously. But I don't know that – do I come on this program to talk about what I wear? Well, I mean, uh, there are a lot of people that have comments in our chat about your attire, and they bring it up all <laughs> the time. Some are probably not very good. Randy says that one used to be white. <laughs> Who said that? Randy. Randy said, Marty, that used to be white. He said, your son's got a white and blue shirt on, and next to you in the monitor, that looks as yellow. Guys, am I wrong on this? No, you're not wrong. That looks yellow. It's an eggshell white. <laughs> okay. So you discount the possibility that you, you work with cheap equipment. Well, you we're discount getting it from that your computer or your phone, whatever it is. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Hey, listen, I want to ask okay. you a little bit about um, – the Reds now, everybody's uh, reporting into camp. Uh, David yep. Bell made the comment uh, the very first day, the day when everybody reported before the workouts yesterday, that uh, Joey Votto and Nick Senzel coming back from very serious injuries and or surgery uh, would not be ready when right. the games start this Saturday. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. But I want to ask you about those two guys in particular from a bigger picture standpoint. Do you think this is Joey Votto's last year in spring training with the Cincinnati Reds? Yes. Yes, Why? I do. Well, I mean, given the given the fact that they are on an austerity program uh, from a financial perspective, and the fact that um, 
you know, he's got an option after this year, and they there's a buyout, I think, of $7 million to have him walk, and the, the, the run of uh, years in a red uniform would be over with. And what it would cost them to sign him, um, I, I, I think from a financial perspective, unless even even if he went out and had 35 home runs and drove in X number of runs and batted 275 or better, I just think that at his age, you have a chance to uh, terminate a deal uh, based on the original agreement that was signed 10 years ago or whatever it was. I just don't think it would be financially, it would be contrary to everything they've talked about the last two or three years. Especially people would say, as much as they may love Joey Votto, from a financial perspective, you're signing a guy who will be 40 years old to a multi-million dollar deal, even though it would be for one year. I just don't think it would be it would be uh, the type of thing that would be successful for this ball club. I really don't. Well, you know, when, when, when you look at the whole thing, and, and, and I could be wrong on these exact numbers, you're exactly right about the $7 million buyout if they decide not to pick up the option. There is a one-year option somewhere in the neighborhood of about $20 million. Do you think there's there a There possible... you go. What's that? I said, there you go. That's an even bigger reason why. Unless okay. they negotiate it down, um, and I don't think, you know, as much as I think he wants to stay here, and, and and end his career in a red uniform. I don't, stop it, Melly. I don't think that that he would he would take less than what the buyout would give him. Uh, a one year seven million dollar contract, or or whatever the case might be, that would be an exception probably. Yeah. But that's all on the assumption that he has a good year this year. And I don't think, quite honestly, there's any guarantee that that's going to happen. Would we be surprised if it happened? Knowing him, I would say no, we would not be surprised. But you have to consider, uh, you know, he's been very hurt the last two or three years. Um, he is, as I said, I think he's 39 years old now. I just don't see where it would be a viable situation unless they were to sit down with him based on having the kind of year that would give them pause and think about bringing him back they were able to sit down and negotiate a better deal than $20 million for 2024. All right, I, I want to ask you this, because you were extremely reluctant when you had made the decision that you were going to retire. Uh, you were very reluctant when initially approached, approached by the Reds about having a quote-unquote sort of uh, goodwill, goodwill tour around the league. Okay, and, and yeah. eventually you came right. around to, to understanding maybe some of the pros and cons, weighing them, and you said, okay, I'm going to announce this is my last year ahead of time. And you went through all that, and it was a wonderful year. Right. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Um, it was. Do you think it would be smart? If you ran the Reds, or if you were Joey Votto, do you think it would be smart ahead of time to say, okay, you know what, no matter what happens this year, and you walk through all the possibilities with him. And you say, okay, well, let's say you do have a good year. We're telling you ahead of time we're not picking up a $20 million option. We would be willing to consider, you know, a $7, 8000000 million one-year contract. You come back and play again with the Reds. If he says, I'm not interested in that. If you were Votto or if you were the Reds, do you think it would be important to say ahead of time before the season starts it's Joey Votto's last year so the fans can know that this is it for him as a Red? 
Well, uh, yeah, I would say uh, on the surface, it would be a great idea. Uh, but then you have to sit down with him, obviously, uh, and, and find out what his intentions are beyond 2023. And I think there would be a lot of, of either or involved in that from Joey's perspective. I think if Joey, uh, they sat down in a situation like that and say, what's your thinking? And Joey might say, and this is all speculation, uh, well, you know, if I have a terrible year uh, or a year that doesn't meet the standards that I feel like I've set through all the seasons I've been with this club, then I would consider retiring. Uh, but if I had a good year, then there's no way I would retire. Well, you can't operate under the situation that you're talking about because there is that speculation. There is that question mark. If he has a bad year, it's a great idea. If he has a good year, then there's no sense in having the kind of year you're talking about because he's going to play again or want to play again. I don't, I don't, I don't see how that is a workable solution yeah. unless Joey privately has made up his mind uh, that 2023 will be his last year no matter what. And I don't think that's in his mind at all. Nothing that based on the things that he has said uh, about his career going forward, I don't think that would even work. I really I, don't. I thought he was spot on, Dad, in, 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 uh, in uh, sort of, you know, um, hitting the nail on the head about where Reds fans are right now and the way they look at the franchise. I, I thought it was very refreshing. Not a surprise for Votto. I mean, look, he, 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 thinks, out, he thinks about things uh, and, and, and certainly gathers his thoughts before he just flies off the cuff. He knew this kind of thing was going to be coming uh, as the quote-unquote leader of the franchise and the face of the franchise. I thought he hit the nail on the head, and I thought it was refreshing. What did you think? I agree 100%. Um, but, you know, Joey Votto's bulletproof. Joey Votto can say anything he wants to say, and all the club can do is grind its teeth and live with it. I mean, it, 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 find me another player in that clubhouse that would have said the same thing he said. Yeah. Because those guys aren't bulletproof. They're, most of them are young guys trying to make their mark in the big leagues, and they got more important things to worry about than whether or not the, the fans are – supportive of the fans have turned against this club. Uh, everything he said was refreshingly accurate. Uh, and, and, and God bless him for being able to say it and being the guy that's the most notable guy in that clubhouse. But uh, I, I mean, so, so what he said was, was refreshing. Uh, so what? So, so what does it accomplish him saying? Tell me that. Well, the only thing I would say is, is I, I think it says to the fans that you've got somebody who plays for the franchise is putting on the uniform every day that, you know, he gets it, if for lack of a better term. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. But he's 126 of the equation. Um, and as fine a player as he's been throughout his career, uh, you know, he's, he's a guy that has a question mark over his head, uh, even being ready to play when the season starts along with, as you said earlier, Nick Senzel. Um, you know, I, I, I think probably people respect the fact that he said what he said because they are saying, you know, he essentially said what we've all felt. Uh, but once it's been said, once it's been publicized, it's over and done with. Uh, it's certainly not going to change any plan that this club has under Nick Crawl moving forward with 
the young players and hoping that they mature fairly quickly to make them a better ball club. Uh, but Joey has, has, I'm sure, expressed the opinion of a lot of people that have suffered through some bad seasons of late. Do you foresee him, and again, I know you don't have a crystal ball here, but I'm just curious your thoughts. Do you foresee him um, doing, say, what Albert Pujols did? So last year was the last year Pujols' monster deal signed the exact same offseason as Votto's deal was signed, uh, where they both signed 10-year contracts. Uh, And then at the end of this year, uh, everybody knew he wasn't coming back to the Angels, and so he moves over to the Dodgers to play for a contender. I think when he went, everybody thought he wasn't going to add much, and then all of a sudden he goes on this incredible run again. But now he's, he's finished and it's wrapped up. Do you, for, do, do you think Votto's the kind of guy that can accept that sort of role and consider going to a team where he you know, could win a World Series ring? I don't, I don't know, Tom. I, <clears throat> I think Joey's a different breed of cat. Um, I, I I don't know what drove uh, Albert Pujols uh, to go to the Dodgers, unless it was uh, to go to a club that had a chance of winning, uh, not just winning, but winning a world championship. Um, Joey Votto has never expressed a desire to leave Cincinnati and go to a team that would give him a chance of being in the World Series. That's the thing that's bothered me about him in the last five or six or seven years. Uh, I just question how important it would have been for him to be a part of a world championship team because I got to believe that had he gone to the Reds and said, look, you know, I'm tired of losing. Uh, I'd like one shot at being on a world championship team. Can you do me a favor and make the best deal you can? And I I don't know that that's ever happened because he has expressed a desire to end his career exactly where he started. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there are not a lot of players that are able to do yeah. that. Albert certainly didn't do it. But at the end of the day, uh, it was a, a happy ending for Albert because he ended up back in a Cardinal uniform. He was spectacular last year in his final year in the big leagues, and he was back home where it all started for him. I can't, I can't see that being the same road that Joey would travel. I really can't. Uh, Nick Senzel. Now, I mean, here's a guy, and, and look, I, I, you know, I, I see both sides of this thing. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. You know, when the guy's drafted out of Tennessee, big high-round draft pick, has he lived up to the expectations? Absolutely, unequivocally, he has not. There's no debate about that right from the get-go. But having said that, when they drafted him, they changed his position two or three times over the years. Uh, I don't know what kind of effect that has had on him ultimately. Uh, They tried to get him to dramatically change his approach uh, as a hitter at the plate. Uh, And then he said, you know, to hell with all that after he was struggling four or five years ago and went back to his old style. The bottom line is he can't stay on the field or hasn't been able to stay on the field. Do you think this is his last hurrahs or red? I certainly do. Uh, And and again, you've itemized everything. He's been very injury prone. Uh, he did have to, as a number one draft pick, then come into camp and have to agree to a lineup change. It was out of necessity for the ball club uh, and put him in the outfield. And I, I got to believe that uh, that has affected the kind of career he's had up to this point, along with the, the injuries. Uh, but at the same time, you're talking about a number one pick. You're also talking about a young man who was, when he's healthy, he's really never hit. Now, you know, based on what you hear and read, 
he spent the offseason uh, making some changes in his offensive approach at the plate. Uh, time will tell whether or not that is something that can radically turn his situation around and he can begin to perform uh, like you would expect a number one draft pick to perform. Uh, I think it's a it's a crapshoot right now, and I, I think that no one knows it better than Nick does. Yeah. Um, I don't think he needs to be told the position he's in and how the patience of a big league club, uh, having drafted a number one draft pick who has not turned out for whatever the reason, the way they had expected him to turn out from a productivity standpoint, he knows that this this is a very, very important season uh, for him. And, 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 I mean, here's a kid that won't be ready for spring training to begin. As far as the games are concerned, uh, it would be nice to have him healthy and in the lineup as quickly as they can. And I'm, they, they may be dealing with him the same way that uh, they apparently are dealing with Joey when uh, David Bell made the comment that Joey will come to me and let me know when he's ready to play. Yeah. And, and maybe that's the same situation that they're, they're dealing with uh, relative to, uh, to Nick Senzel. But this, this is a big year for him. He could very well find himself in a different uniform in 2024 if this year is a repeat of what we have seen all too many times already since he came out of the University of Tennessee. All right, I got two more things for you. Number one, Chris Sabo. He's joining us today for our big interview coming up later today. You know, you go back and you look yep. at this guy, and the Reds take him out of the University of Michigan. Uh, he's in the minor leagues. He was all, already a little bit of an older player because he was a college guy playing with Barry at, yep. at Michigan. And then he, he's in the minor leagues for five years. And then all of a sudden in 88, you know, he, he gets a chance to win the job at third base and he becomes a rookie of the year. Nobody saw that coming, right? No, nobody did. I mean, when they talked about rookie of the year candidates, I don't know that Chris Sabo's name was even mentioned, quite honestly. Um, but he won the award. And then he was a star in the World Series in 1990, you know, when he hit the two home runs in game three off Mike Moore out in Oakland. Um I, the guy had a good career. He really did. And uh, I was on the uh, one leg of the caravan with him uh, last month. And a absolutely delightful guy to be around. I'm not kidding you. He, he's funny. Um, he's interesting to talk to. Uh, he's just the kind of guy that you enjoy sitting around. Uh, has opinions about a lot of things that are well-founded. Um, and I thoroughly enjoy being with you. He was not an easy guy to know yeah. when he played. He, he, he had, didn't have a whole lot to say. Um, I, I don't know what kind of sense of humor he had then because he rarely ever – he would be – it's not that he was nasty. He, if you talk to him, he'd be very polite. Uh, and he and I used to talk about his dad, uh, who is no longer with us, but was an outstanding amateur golfer in the state of Michigan, one of the best amateur players in the entire state. Um, and, and that's where I think Chris got his love for the game of golf. And Chris is probably a better player today than his dad ever dreamed about being. And his old man was a good player. But he is really a fun guy to be around. I enjoyed the time I spent with him. And I think he will provide for you and the people watching uh, this program today a, a very interesting interview because he really is a, a neat guy that uh, I think in many ways would surprise a lot of people remembering how reserved he was when he played the in the big leagues back in the uh, 80s and into the 90s. All right, last thing I'm going to ask you about, I heard somebody make the comment on the radio the other day that they could care less about North Carolina basketball except for 
Marty Brenneman's tweets that go out after your beloved Tar Heels continue to lay egg after egg after egg and now are very much uh, in jeopardy of not making the NCAA tournament after being preseason number one. Where are you with the Carolina Tar Heels? They're playing Notre Dame tonight. Where are you? Well, they could get beat tonight. Uh, playing at South Bend, I think they've got to run the table now in the final four games that they've got, which will not be an easy task considering the way they play. And then they've got to win a game or so in the in the ACC tournament uh, to get back on the wagon again. I don't think it's ever happened where a team that was ranked preseason number one failed to make the NCAA tournament. Never has, no. Nope. Um, and, and, and the same problems have existed with uh, 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 an exception or two, uh, the entire season. I mean, and I think that Hubert Davis and his coaching staff has to be included along with the inability of the team as a whole to shoot. Uh, I think it's incredible that there have never been any changes made in the lineup. Pete Nance, God bless him, has been a major disappointment for this team when they tried, brought him in as a transfer out of Northwestern. Um, the guards cannot shoot yet they throw up the damnedest wild shots I've ever seen. They make terrible on-court decisions, more in Caleb Love's case and in R.J. Davis's case, but Davis is guilty too. He refuses, he meaning Davis, to make lineup changes when he's got Pup Johnson on the bench. He's got, even if, if they're young players, Tyler Nichols can shoot the eyes out of the ball. Um, and, and some of these other players that they've got coming out of the bench. I made the point, Two, three weeks ago, and a guy jumped my ass bad about it. I said, mark my word, and I brought it up again the other day, you're going to see some of the guys on this team enter the transfer portal when the season is over because they did not get playing time in a situation that demanded that Hubert Davis make some lineup changes, and he would not do it. And I don't blame them if they leave because if this is going to be Davis's approach, you know, I've got five guys and five or six, no more than seven are going to play on any given night. And I think that I was a highly talented player coming out of high school. I, I got to go somewhere else where I can get a chance to play. He has got a great recruiting class coming in. But at the same time, I got to be concerned about those guys looking at this situation and say, well, you know, all those highly talented freshmen that he had coming in this year, they got very little chance to play. And even though I'm a five-star player, I got to wonder what I'm going to look at. And uh, I, I think they need to be concerned about some of these guys decommitting and deciding to go somewhere else. Does this seem this season has been a major disaster? I feel bad for Armando Baycott because he came back for two reasons: one, he loves the University of North Carolina, and secondly, he felt that what they did last year, shocking the world by going to the championship game against Kansas that they had a great chance of winning it all this season. I feel bad for him because I think that guy comes to play every night. I question that statement relative to some of the other guys in that lineup. All right, last thing, your good friend and mine, Everett, who, you know, sure. you've been going back and forth lately about Dumbledore and the Harry Potter series. You know, he, he, he says, look, he says, I have really enjoyed this back and forth with my all-time favorite sports announcer, Marty Brenneman. And he wants to know, this is his simple yes. question. He wants to know, okay. do you have a favorite book 
or series uh, from, you know, the whole um, uh, Harry Potter series? Is there a favorite particular book of all of them? Uh, that answer would be no, there isn't. I was so enamored by the whole thing. Uh, I'll never forget uh, years and years ago after the first book had come out, my dear friend Herb Reisenfeld, who's a reader like I am, and we were having a conversation one day, and he said, have you read the first book in this Harry Potter series? And I said, no, you haven't done it, have you? He said, yeah. I said, you got to be kidding me. That's a kid's book. He said, do me a favor and get the first one and read it and come back to me. I did. I was I was captured by it. I read every single one of them. As I said a million times on this show, I've watched all the movies. And I think I've seen them all more than once. I've been to the Harry Potter uh, showcase down at Universal Studios in Orlando, which if, uh, I've said before, if anybody watching this program is a Harry Potter fan and they've never been down there, do yourself a favor and go because it will blow you away how cool it is. Uh, but I don't think any one book uh, captured my interest more than any of the other books did. I, I was just a big fan. And and uh, in fact, I, I told Amanda, I may decide to go back and read them all again because I, I enjoyed them that much. And I'm fascinated by some person, in this case, J.K. Rowling, could have the kind of imagination yep. that she did, especially a woman that was so down and out on her luck that she had lived in her car for a while over in England and, and could could write a series of books the way she did. Uh, it just, it's marvelous to me. It blows my mind. I think that's why I'm such a fan of, of people who have made their living, living writing books that they can sit down in front of a computer terminal for six or seven hours a day and write. And what she did was beyond comprehension. No, so Everett, um, no, no favorite book. Uh, I'd be interested if you let Tom know which one it, your favorite is. Wow. Uh, I'm sure I'd be a whole lot of interest in that. Um, oh God, but, uh, I thought I thought fine. you had actually had the peace offering there, and then you got to go that last line and roll the eyes. I, I think Everett knows that we're having a good time with this. And, and and quite honestly, once, you know, spring training comes and goes, because I'm leaving to go to spring training next week, and um, with things settle down and we can all get together one day after you get off the air, and you and me and Everett and Paul and Casey and whoever else can have lunch somewhere and, and chat, uh, that would be really good. Uh, I would enjoy that. All in. Okay. All right. That's that, a deal. That's you good. guys game for that? Casey, uh, Paul, I mean, you guys don't have much else to do, right? What else is going on? Right. Let's hang out. That's yeah. exactly right. All right, hey, let me well, ask, can, can I ask Paul a question? Uh, of course. Can, can I ask Paul a question? Yep. <clears throat> we, Paul, if you were to say today, <clears throat> uh, now I, I agree, and this, this is not a question based on the fact that they got beat last night. I watched that game, made me sick to my stomach. How far do you think Xavier can go in the NCAA tournament? I think a lot of it, Marty, depends on their depth. I mean, right now they're missing Zach Fremiano, of course, who's the second-leading scorer, but they're also missing two guards, uh, Cam Kraft, the freshman who had just started getting minutes. He's not going to play probably for the next two to three weeks. Kiki Tandy, too, who's been really inconsistent, hasn't gotten a lot of minutes either. Uh, so they are just missing depth, and I think that's catching up with them. They got that win over Providence. They got that they, – they had a couple of wins without Fremantle, but now they've lost three games without him, but – 
Marty, those three games have come by a combined four points. So I see a lot of people talking right. about, you know, is Xavier collapsing? Is this the February misery again? I really don't think it is. I think it's just depth catching up with Xavier. And you could see last night, I mean, you said you watched the game. So, I mean, you know, you'd know it as well as anybody. They, they kept trying that entry pass into the post. They just couldn't get it there. They kept turning it over. They turned it over more times in the second half than they had made shots. And it just – it felt right. like last night was the first – it was really the first time that I felt like they desperately missed Fremantle. They could have probably beaten Butler without him. Um, it, you know, it, it just felt like this was the game where they really could have used his depth instead of just running the starters out there for 30-plus minutes. If he comes back and he is a, a full version of himself, and it's not just like, ah, oh, we're going to throw him out there for 10 to 15 minutes and he's going to try and hobble around. Yeah. If he's fully what he was before he got hurt, I do think Xavier's a second weekend team. If he's not, they're going to probably need a, a pretty good bracket in the first weekend. I think a lot of it rides on just maybe what what kind of depth is looking like uh, around Madison Square Garden and then after that. Well, let's hope they're healthy by the time the tournament begins. Yeah, let's hope yeah. they are. Let's hope yeah. they are. All right, Dad, have a great rest of your day. Nice to see you. We love you. Take it easy. Same here, pal. I'll be talking with you. All right. All right. So there you have right. it. There you have it. Um, we mentioned we got Chris Sabo coming up uh, at about 1045. He'll be joining us till about 1130. And so we have a few minutes, and I want to revisit, uh, Paul. I'm going to throw it to the Ham and Eggers uh, and uh, take a quick break here. I will. And then before we get Sabo, I, I want to tie a ribbon around this Xavier thing, or maybe we wait till 1130. Sure. This will be a short amount of time because okay. I really want to get into this whole thing because as somebody accurately points out here, Ronnie Smith in the chat said, right now Xavier is carrying the flag for Cincinnati basketball. Yeah. All right, we'll all right. get into it. All right, Ham and Eggers, all you. Ham and Eggers. All right, thanks, Casey. Uh, or thanks, Tom. Casey, we got some work to do here. We got some work to do. Uh, <clears throat> you doing okay? Everything good? I am. <laughs> Just before, just before we get to this, is everything good? You know, I, I'm okay. I, I that didn't a, sound very convincing, Casey. Betting wise, oh, yesterday no. just really just put a damper. You donated I mean, to Betfred yesterday, didn't you? I did, but I was so close to winning like a four-figure bet. I mean, oh, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I oh, mean, yeah. I just yeah. It is what it is, you know. It just happens sometimes. It is what and it is. A team just can't quite get over the hump on a six-leg parlay, and then it just kills you. Ah, the parlays, Casey. The parlays. They're killing us. So that was brought to you by Betfred. That was brought to you by Betfred. Betfred. And uh, we talked a little bit about UC. They're playing tonight against Temple. Huge one for UC tonight if they want to uh, kind of position themselves in the uh, – AAC tournament. So the Bearcats report is brought to you by Encore Technologies. Encore Technologies provides IT solutions for a data-centered world with a suite of services from mobile computing to desktop to data center, supporting both centralized and work-from-home computing models to improve efficiency and productivity. Visit Encore.tech. The path to innovation begins here. There is also, right here in front of me, a new premium alkaline water, and that is Pani. Made in Hamilton, Ohio, Pawnee uses natural limestone filtration, unlike 
the artificial processing that many other brands use. The result is a healthy alkaline water that is also the best tasting water in the world. Visit their website at pawneywater.com. That is P-A-H-H-N-I water.com. P-A-H-H-N-I water.com to see where you can buy this great tasting water. Get your coffee from UDF, bet with Betfred, drink Pawnee water, and get your technology solutions with Encore at Encore.tech. That's our business for the day. Yeah. Um, there is one comment on here that Sir Boy actually said that I, I'm actually starting to believe now. Uh, my dad mentioned this like two or three weeks ago. He said, son, I really think Miami, Florida can go deep into this, yeah. into this bracket. And I kind of just shrugged it off. But they just keep proving me wrong like every single time they play. I mean, last this last game was huge for them. Yeah, I think that, Miami, Florida is a true player now. The, the the win last night at Virginia Tech is definitely a, a very, very good one for Miami. I think the difference now becomes what is the ACC. So Oof, the yeah. ACC is having such a bad year. At what point do you kind of read into, okay, well, they're getting good wins. They kind of keep moving up the rankings. Their computer numbers look good, but they're beating up on these ACC teams. Where does that factor in? And that's where we'll find out this year how good or bad they really were or really are. The ACC, I should say, as a whole. I heard Paul somewhere yesterday um, uh, or read somewhere yesterday, and I, and I didn't see who they were. But uh, I guess Joe Lenardi had five ACC teams in the NCAA tournament. Is that a surprise to you? I, I, I don't know if it's necessarily a surprise uh, because when you go down the list, I mean, Virginia's going to be in – um, North Carolina State, NC State's going to be in. Miami's going to be in. That's three. Um, you know, Maryland. Oh, sorry, Maryland's a Big Ten. Wow. How Big long Ten. has that been? I'm just trying to rattle that off. They're Big Ten. But Duke will be in. Um, so, how? I don't know. But they're going to be kind of middle of the road seeds. So, so we'll. Uh, so we'll see, you know, how that all how that all goes. Okay. All right. Well, we'll get to college basketball uh, after our visit with um, Chris Sabo coming up momentarily. And um, that's coming up here in just a second. Understand yep. he's on the line. Christopher Andrew Sabo, our guest coming up, was born in Detroit, Michigan in January of 1962. It's hard to believe he's now 61 years young, doesn't it? Gosh, it's hard to believe. His father was a plumber, a great golfer, as my dad just alluded a, mom, a moment ago. His mom was a waitress. Sabo attended Detroit Catholic Central High School. He was a three-sport star in hockey, a goalie, great golfer, still is now, and, of course, in baseball. He attended the University of Michigan, where he and Barry Larkin led the Wolverines to a college World Series. Sabo was drafted by the Reds in the second round of the 1983 Major League Draft. Five years later, was a National League's Rookie of the Year, and in 1990, helped propel the Reds to a World Series title, an unbelievable World Series. Nine hits and 16 at-bats, two home runs, five knocked in. Chris Abo would play in three All-Star games, and three times he was the best fielding defensive third baseman in the National League. Since retiring, he's had coaching stints in the Reds organization, also in summer ball, and helped relaunch the baseball program at the University of Akron. But most importantly, most importantly, 
He has been a husband going all the way back to 1989 to his bride, Susan. And they are the uh, mother and father of three children, Annie, Brooke, and Olivia. Of course, Annie, you see regularly as part of the Reds uh, television broadcast, hosting the pregame and postgame shows. Chris Sabo, boy, what a pleasure it is. My dad, Chris, said how much fun he had with you uh, on the Reds caravan. What was that like to get back out there on the caravan again? It's been a while. How are you doing, Tom? Long time, uh, no talk. So uh, I know. You doing okay? <laughs> I'm great. I'm down here in Florida. I mean, the, what, it's 80 and sunny. I mean, how, how can you beat it? So, no, uh, you cannot beat it. And I understand you're playing a lot of good golf right now. My dad told me you're really playing well. Is that safe to say? I'm playing well. I mean, I have my day still. Uh, I'm 61 years old, so it takes, a, it takes a long time to get my body ready. Uh, to play. So I, I got a routine. I do about an hour every day in order to uh, be able to play some golf. But uh, I try to get out there three or four times a week. want to go back, Chris, to you growing up uh, in Detroit, Michigan. I always love to ask our guests that we have on every Wednesday. What Paint a picture for us, Chris, of what life was like growing up in the Sabo household. Well, it's, uh, it was interesting. Uh, it was uh, pretty much me and my sister, uh, we lived in Detroit, uh, a little bit in Farmington, uh, briefly, but uh, it was great. I love Detroit. I, obviously, I didn't know anything different. Uh, I was a big sports fan. My, my dad was a big uh, Detroit Tigers, uh, Detroit Red Wing guy, Lions. So uh, sports were big in our family. And uh, you know, back in those days, there, there weren't any uh, video games or really very much on TV. So uh, we were outside pretty much. Uh, as soon as he got back from school until it was time to eat, and then uh, back uh, outside <laughs> until it was uh, dark. You were a, uh, you know, uh, uh, living in that house, as you mentioned, with your sister, your mom, and dad. Uh, your dad was, my dad was just sharing a few minutes ago about what a great golfer your dad was. But, but, but growing up, you know, your mom, your dad, you were lucky to have them together. As you look back on it now and the kind of father that you are, the kind of husband that you are, or maybe it had something to do with your work ethic, or maybe it had something to do with anything imaginable. When you look back at the lessons you learned from your mom and dad, you would say the one or two most important things to this day now would be what? Well, obviously hard work. Uh, my dad was a plumber and my mom was a waitress. My mom's, my grandmother, my mom's mom, she was a waitress. I mean, she lived to be 100 years old. Uh, so I, I would say hard work and uh, sticking to something. My dad used to always say that if you start something, try to finish it. So uh, I, I think those are the two big things. And I mean, I still work hard. The, the body doesn't react like it did 40 years ago. <laughs> uh, but you do the best you can for the, so you can have some kind of quality of life as you enter the, uh, you know, the bottom of the ninth inning of your life, so to speak. So, uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, th that would be it. You know, obviously you pick up good things and bad things as you look back on your, on your parents. Uh, obviously there's some bad things and, but there's plenty of good things. And so, uh, when you become a parent, you, you, you try to try to emphasize the good things. And, uh, I've been blessed with great health, uh, great life. Uh, it's just been awesome. So, uh, I have nothing, uh, to look back and be embarrassed about or anything like that. 
I want to walk through the three sports that that, that you played because uh, some might say they're very different. And and maybe from an emotional standpoint, uh, in the heat of a game or a a day-in, a day-out routine, they certainly are very different. But, you know, as I was sharing with you a little bit earlier, you were a goalie in hockey and a great goalie in hockey. It takes a different kind of guy, in my opinion, to be the goalie in a sport. I have a son that's a goalie in lacrosse and a very good one. Uh, and a goalie in hockey, you, you just get the snot beat out of you. But, but, you know, even though you have a defense around you in hockey or lacrosse or whatever to protect you, it, it, in many ways, it's sort of an individual moment. Can you stop the shot? Can you block the shot? Can you not do it? Golf, the same thing. You're out there walking around. There's not the noise. There's not the crowd. But it's still an individual sport. In baseball, you're at the plate. Yes, it's a team game. But it's a one-on-one matchup with a pitcher. Do you agree with that synopsis that there are a lot more similarities with those three things and maybe differences in those three things? No, I agree. It's similar. Uh, You've known me for a long time. Your dad's known me for a long time. I'm pretty much an introverted guy anyway. I'm, you know, I like people, but you know, I'm just not outgoing as like my daughter Annie is or my wife. Uh, and, and all of those sports, like you just said, have the uh, individual aspect to it. Uh, but except for golf, there's a team uh, aspect to it also. In uh, hockey, I was a good skater, and uh, I always enjoyed being the goalie because I was the last line of defense. I mean, I could, if I played well, I could dictate uh, the outcome of a game. And conversely, if I played terrible, I could, uh, uh, you know, have the outcome of the game because I played terrible. So uh, that's what I loved about hockey. I loved all the sports, I still do. I mean, I played, I played old man hockey until about four or five years ago and I got bad arthritic feet, so I really can't put skates on anymore, but, uh, uh, I agree. They're all different a little bit, but again, you know, when you're batting, it's just you and the pitcher. Mm-hmm. I mean, Eric Davis, Barry Arkins, not going to come up here and hold me by the waist and try to make me swing. <laughs> so uh, I enjoyed that. But then again, on defense, that's how I could help the team out by making some plays out there. Uh, I used to have tremendous slumps hitting, uh, but I, I can honestly say defensively in baseball, at least, I really never went to a slump. I always feel about the same. All, all the way through the season. Why did you decide? Because, I mean, you were, you were starting to move up to play at the very highest levels as a hockey goalie. What, what was a determining yeah. factor for you of baseball rather than hockey? I get asked that a lot. And uh, to be quite honest, growing up in Detroit, I was known, known as the hockey guy, as a hockey player. Obviously, in, in uh, Michigan, the baseball season is kind of short, especially in high school. And uh, but hockey was long. We, back then, we play 110, 120 games a year, and uh, you know I, I played on teams that won national championships, state championships, all, all that kind of stuff. I went went and played junior hockey. Uh, I was offered all kinds of scholarships in college, Division One, by big schools. Uh, and quite honestly, I tell people I wish I could have played them both. You know, like the Bo Jackson and uh, Dion Sanders. Uh, I thought it was that I was that good. I, I could have played hockey and baseball, but back in the late '70s and early '80s, you, you sort of had to make a choice. And uh, I always liked hitting. I, I liked hitting the baseball. I, I liked that challenge of the one-on-one thing. 
And uh, so I think that was ultimately what drove me to baseball at the University of Michigan. Uh, all three years I was there, I was always asked to play hockey by the by the hockey program. And I used to ask the, the, our coach, Bud Middaw, if, if I could play a little hockey. And he said no. And uh, that put an end to that. But uh, I think it all ended up I had to choose. And uh, the hitting part of baseball, which was which was fun, uh, was the deciding factor of me choosing baseball over hockey. When you go to Michigan, I, I mentioned earlier, you're teamed up with Barry Larkin, uh, who uh, I, I remember him as an athlete coming out of high school. Uh, we're, we're roughly the same age. You and I are roughly the same age. What do you remember about seeing him on a field or, or meeting him for the first time? You, you recall that going back? I know it's a long time ago. Oh, yeah, I, I remember it. We, we, you know, back then, Michigan had some really good baseball teams. Uh, I played there three years. We went to the World Series twice, uh, finished seventh one year, and I think third the year Larkin was there. And uh, to this day, I still think we have the best team in that College World Series that, in 1983. You know, but Texas, Texas was loaded. They had Roger Clemens and Calvin Schiraldi and Mike Capel. So they, they had some pitchers that could, you know, obviously major league caliber. Uh, yeah, but I remember Barry. I'm, I'm a couple years older. So uh, my last year at Michigan, he was a freshman. And uh, he came in with a lot of hoopla, uh, you know, Moeller. Uh, you know, I didn't know what I heard about Cincinnati Moeller, you know, growing up in Detroit. But I, I knew I didn't know anything about Cincinnati. I'd never been to Cincinnati in my life. I pretty much pretty much just Michigan and uh, Canada. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, I remember him. He was a high draft pick. Uh, out of high school by the by the Reds. I don't know if he's a first-rounder. He's either the first or second-rounder. Mm -hmm. And he came to Michigan with a lot of hoopla. Uh, he had to choose between football and uh, baseball. He chose baseball. And uh, you could tell right away, he, he was a little raw in, in that freshman year, like we like all of us were, uh, freshman year in college, when you actually start playing baseball a little bit more. Uh, but you could just tell, he, he had all the tools, all the five tools that you, that you uh, you gauge players by, and you knew it was just a matter of time uh, once he got the experience that he, he's going to be a great player. Uh, now, did I think he was going to be a, a, a Hall of Fame type of player? No, but uh, I definitely thought he was going to have a great collegiate career, which he did, and he was going to make a he was going to play in the big leagues someday as long as he stayed healthy. He was great. You, you, you get drafted uh, by the Reds. You sign, and, and, and you're uh, five years in the minor leagues. Now comes 88, um, and uh, you're in big league camp. First of all, what was it like to play or, or just walk into a clubhouse, put on a uniform, and the guy standing at the other end of the dugout or standing next to you uh, while you're taking BP is Pete Rose? Oh, my God. I, I love Pete. Pete, Pete was great, and he, obviously he liked me. Uh, I had been in spring training a couple times before, and he was always nice to me. I, I didn't play that much, uh, but it was great being around all those guys, him and Buddy Bell, Dave Parker. I mean, Terry Francona was there uh, for, for a year. Uh, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm a quiet guy for the most part, so I, I just sat, me, I remember me and Paul O'Neill, we, we were, you know, on the same track to the big leagues, we used, to, we used to just sit in the corner there, me, me number 50, and I, I forgot what number Paul was. I'm sure he was a high number. And we just sat there and listened to all of them. Uh, Pete telling stories, Dave Parker telling stories. And, 
It was awesome. I mean, I, I love Pete. I mean, obviously, uh, he's a gigantic reason why I had the career I did in the major leagues. He believed in me, and, uh, you know, I, I have nothing but good things to say about Pete, Peter Edward. When, when, when you look back at 88 and you go on and you win the National League's Rookie of the Year award, when, when you're able to think back to spring training that year, and look, every player's got to have confidence, almost to the point where it's, it's a big ego. They don't have to show it off to everybody. But you've got to believe in yourself if anybody else is going to believe in you, right? Would you have thought in a million years when you show up in spring training in 88 that you'd be the rookie of the year in the National League? I didn't think that. I, I never thought in, in those kind of terms as far as awards or anything. I, I, I would just, you know, I, I always felt the same way in the minors and – Every level of ball I ever played, you know, we, we won a state championship in high school. Uh, we went to the College World Series and, and uh, in college, uh, we won a few uh, minor league uh, championships when I was in the minor leagues, and I was fortunate enough to uh, win in the in the major leagues, the World Series. Uh, I was more of a team goal type of guy, and I, I figured if I could help the team win, uh, you get all the recognition you want. Uh, so, so, so that was my mindset. But, you know, to your point of being confident, I, I don't think I was cocky, but I, I, was, I was always confident. Uh, like I tell my players when I coach, and I've coached a long time in, in pros, and I coach the IMG Academy down here in Florida, their top team, and uh, I got Akron's uh, program started up there in, uh, in Ohio. Uh, I, I, I have no idea how many times I went to bat in my whole life. I go, but I guarantee you that there hasn't been one time and that whole sequence of ABs, thousands and thousands and thousands of time, times, that I did not think I was not going to get a hit. Mm -hmm. Every single, I don't care if Nolan Ryan was on the mound, Clemens, Maddox, Smoltz, you name a pitcher. I, I thought I was going to get a hit. Uh, obviously, that's not true. I mean, you know, I was a 270 hitter in the big leagues, for God's sakes. So, uh, but, you, but you have to have the confidence. I, I was always ready defensively. The ball's going to be hit to me. I'm going to pick it up, throw them out. I always knew where to throw the ball. Uh, so I don't know if that's confidence, but uh, it's more of like I was always prepared. I was prepared to go. And uh, uh, still the most exciting moment of, of a baseball game for me was that walk from the on-deck circle, like a riverfront, going to the plate. That was exciting. They, they announced your name. You're walking up there, and now the battle begins with, with again, you know, the Maddox, the Smoltz, David Cones of the world. So, uh, yeah, you have to be confident. Uh, but my mindset was always about teams. You know, we won World Series once, and I honestly thought we were going to win a ton of them. Mm -hmm. But all we did was win one. I mean, Paul O'Neill's my, uh, probably my best friend. And I go, dude, the best thing ever happened to you, you got to trade the Yankees. You, you got to win four – Four or five more titles. You're lucky. I wish they would have traded me with you. So, uh, yeah, confidence is, is key to any, anything you do in life, honestly. When um, you talk about that stroll to the plate, in very short order, you became uh, a, a huge fan favorite in this town. I was still working here when you came up to the big leagues and working at Channel 5 and broadcasting initially with Johnny Bench and getting the Reds games on TV. And look – there were a lot of great stars on those teams and that group that you had all come up together, whether it was Eric Davis or Barry Larkin or Paul O'Neill or Cal Daniels, you know, all these, Kurt Stillwell, uh, Tracy Jones was even off to a great start early in his career before he got hurt. But there were a lot of these guys that came up together, but you were the guy 
that for whatever reason, and I'm curious why you think uh, it's a reason, if you've ever thought about it at all, that seem to have the, the greatest connection with the fans, even though, as you admitted earlier, you may not have been the most outgoing guy in the world. What do you think? Did you sense that connection with the Reds fans right almost from the get-go? I, I guess. I mean, uh, I was just thrilled to be playing, and, and you're right. I mean, I was nowhere near the top uh, of the food chain of far, as far as talent on those, on those teams. You know, with the Eric Davises and Larkins and, you know, the Buddy Bells and you know, Paul. And, I mean, I can go, I can go down the list of all the great players. Uh, I, I don't know why the fans, you know, I, I wasn't from Cincinnati. I know how Cincinnati is, that they really like people from Cincinnati. You know, I was a Detroiter. Uh, and I, I think they liked me because I tried hard. And maybe, maybe they just sensed that, you know, I wasn't the most talented guy on that team. I think I was an important guy in those teams, mm -hmm. but I wasn't the most important guy. You know, they, they could get away with me not playing, but I, I don't know if you can get away with Larkin missing two or three months. Uh, but I, I think I tried hard, and I wore those goggles, you know, and I, I had a short haircut, so who knows? <laughs> you know, I wasn't the biggest wasn't the biggest guy around, and, uh, and I enjoy signing autographs. Maybe that had to do it. That, you know, I, I thought that was part of the job. Try to sign as many autographs as you could because, you know, these people came to the game and, you know, this might be the only game they, they came to all year. And, you know, and if they get an autograph, you know, I remember going to Detroit Tiger games and uh, I really wasn't into autographs. But if you yelled like Al Kaline's name or Norm Cash and, or Mickey Lolich and, and they gave you a little wave, I mean, that was big deal. So uh, maybe that was it. Maybe I signed a lot of autographs. Uh I'm not a deep thinker in those kind of terms. So uh, I, I never thought about it. I, I never worried about it one way or another. I, I did my best. Uh, when I went to the car or to a restaurant around town, and I remember seeing you and Bill Hammer running around town in those early years. And <laughs> yeah. that, that was fun. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, 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 like, like I tell people, 99.9% .9 of the people I've ever met are, are good people. You know, so... Uh, that's the way I look at things. Well, they still love you here. I, I mean, it's amazing. In our chat right now, the people are just bringing up memories of you as a player. That World Series, I was in um, – I was already doing the Cubs games in 1990, but I had been asked to come back to do some stuff in the postseason with Channel 5. So I was traveling around during the league championship series against the Pirates um, and going to all the games and then ultimately the World Series going to the games. But, but I remember being in Lou Pinella's office – uh, after you guys had just won the LCS. And Jimmy Stewart, you'll remember the legendary scout the Reds had, yeah. Jimmy Stewart. Um, he was sitting in the office. I just happened to be in there. There were only about four or five of us on there. And Lou Pinella had said, uh, Jimmy had brought this book like this thick. And, and, and it, was, it was his complete scouting report on the Oakland Athletics. And as Lou was opening the thing, Lou casually just says to him, hey, what do you think? And Jimmy Stewart says, you're going to sweep these guys. There's no doubt in my mind. Now, look, did he have a crystal ball? Of course not. But, but what I'm getting at ultimately here is, look, you guys were a young emerging team. You got, I mean, you're so young, that club. I mean, Buddy had moved on by then. Parker had moved on by then. It was the nucleus of a very young team, um, really outside of Browning. He wasn't all that old, uh, truth be told. But Riho and so forth on the mound. When 
when you go to play the World Series, and this is a general question, do players get intimidated at all by the guys you're getting ready to go toe-to-toe with? I mean, you might think you can beat them, but, but, but is there an initial intimidation factor that maybe you had to get over before you played that Oakland team? <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're asking that question to the wrong guy. I mean, I can only speak for myself. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I always thought I was going to get a hit, and I always, I always thought we were going to kick ass. So, uh, no, I, I, didn't, I could care less of the Oakland A's. I, I can care, they were big, muscular guys. So what? You know, big, you know, if all you needed was muscles to hit a baseball, Arnold Schwarzenegger probably should hit a thousand home runs, <laughs> but he, but, but I'm sure he couldn't hit. So, uh, no, I remember them coming to riverfront and taking BP and they were hitting balls in the red seats. And I said, that's great. You know, wait till they face Rio and Danny Jackson and see how they hit. So, uh, no, no, we, we were very confident. Uh, again, we were used to winning. You know, like I said, we, we, were, we, we were always in the playoffs in the minor leagues. We were always competing against championships. Uh, my first couple of years in the big leagues, we had good teams. So, uh, yeah, we were very confident. Now, I don't think there was a guy in that clubhouse who didn't think we were going to win the World Series. But, you know, no, no one could have uh, no, no one would have said we would have won four straight. Uh, but why not? Get it done. It's like pulling a Band-Aid. Pull it off quick. Um, you, you go nine for 16, you hit the two home runs, um, uh, game three, I think it was against Mike Moore. Um, and, and you pull off the sweep, uh, you hit 583, you knock in five, you even walk a couple of times. What do you think it is, Chris? And maybe there's no way of answering this question. I have no idea, but I, I find it just fascinating. And maybe it's just good luck or bad luck, or I, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. But 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 what is it about guys or, or being able to sort of tune out the noise of playing on the biggest stage with the most pressure? Do you think there's something to be said for that? You know, whether it's at the major league level, minor league level, collegiate level, summer league level. Do, do, do you sense there's just some guys that are able to do that? Well, to be quite honest, my whole life has been that way in all the sports I've played. You know, I always played the best in the biggest games. Hockey, you know, the championship games, state championship, national championship games, uh, baseball, uh, I had problems in the run-of-the-mill games. You know, that's why my hitting went up and down so much. I mean, I, I don't know if I, if I get bored or, I mean, you know, my mind would wander. I have no idea. But uh, I always play good in big games in every sport, even now in golf. If I go play like a qualifier or something like that, I always seem to play a little bit better than I do just, you know, playing uh, beer golf with my buddies. So uh, I don't know. For me, it was uh, – I had that. I had a real good ability to really concentrate, and uh, crowd size or lack of crowd size didn't bother me one way or another. I mean, I, I won championships uh, when there was nobody in the stands. And then I won championships when there was fifty thousand people in the stands. So uh, I, I just think it's the ability to focus and, and just concentrate on what you can do, and don't try to do anything you can't do. You know. I wasn't going to hit balls in the red seats. It'd be stupid for me to even try to do that. Uh, my goal is just to try to hit the ball as hard as I could, you know, whether it was on the ground, line drive, 
I happen to get under it, maybe a home run. But uh, the ability to concentrate, I think, is special. And uh, and the bigger the game, the more I enjoyed it. I, I don't know why. I just thought it was more fun. Uh, people ask me, do I, do I ever get nervous? I go, no, I, I never got nervous in any sport I've ever played. Now, do I get excited and anxious? Yeah. I don't think that's nervous. But uh, I just look forward to it. You know, and as a hitter, sometimes I got me in trouble a little bit. I really had to tone it down, you know, because I, I love swinging the bat, you know, so I'd swing at almost everything. So uh, I had to tone it down and make sure I got a good pitch to hit. But uh, I enjoyed those big, big games. I wish I could have played a lot more of them, to tell you the truth. And not, now the only thing I really got is golf. And uh, I play this old man golf, but I, I still try to play in tournaments just to get that blood going a little bit and get, get a little bit of excitement. Where are those specs now, by the way? You still got them, the ones you used to play in back in, back in the days with the red legs? No, I, I don't. I get, I, I get asked that probably once a day somewhere. And uh, I think the last ones I had, I gave the Reds Hall of Fame. I, I think they're in there somewhere. And, uh, but I don't have any at home or, or uh, maybe there's some in storage somewhere. If I, you know, once I'm dead and gone, the, the, the kids can go looking for them. And probably buried in some box with all the, <laughs> all the balls and bats I have. Probably my World Series rings probably back in there too somewhere. You play in three All-Star games. Talked about your great uh, defensive prowess down at third base. Uh, injury certainly became a factor uh, for you as they do with, with so many others. Uh, as you look back and you talked about you wish you had a chance to play in more big games and more World Series and all that kind of things. But, 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 but for you, as you look back on your career, um, you remember what the most? Oh, baseball. I remember my, my first opening day, uh, 1988 against St. Louis, Joe McGrain, uh, Joe McGrain pitching. Uh, that's still the, the highlight of my baseball career. Uh, I, I got to the big leagues and uh, I remember we were playing, uh, we were playing in Louisville either the day or the day before uh, opening day. And I remember I was playing and I, I was sitting in the dugout and Pete come up to me. I, I was leaning on the rail and uh, Pete come up to him and gave him a little elbow and he goes, hey, Spuds. I go, yeah. And uh, he goes, uh, buddy, buddy's not going to be able to go on opening day. So uh, you're in there. I said, I'm ready, Skip. Let's go. And uh, so I was all excited. And uh, I remember calling my parents and stuff like that saying, hey, uh, I'm not going to be on the bench opening day. I'm, I'm going to be starting. Uh, I don't know where I'm going to be hitting and what spot of the order. And, uh, but I'll, I'll be playing uh, against the Cardinals on the opening day. And uh, I got my first hit. Uh, I don't know if I may, I might've had a couple of plays. I don't remember that, but I, I do remember getting a hit. Uh, sort of got jammed a little bit and hit it in the short left field. Um, I want to focus now a little bit more, Chris, on, on your post playing career. You, you get into coaching. Um, and, and you're, you're a positive guy by nature. I mean, I I read a lot of articles about you coming up to this interview today, and you talk a lot about, uh, the importance of being positive. There's no sense in, in planting negative thoughts or things like that into players' minds, but you're also a tell it like it is kind of a guy. So sometimes those two things can, can cross over to one another. I asked Bob Huggins this question, uh, a few weeks ago about young players, do they want to be coached 
do they want to be coached hard? From what you see, do, do you think they still want to be coached hard? I, I do. I, I do. As long as you're respectful. You know, you know, you, you know I, I'm not a guy to be dropping F-bombs on guys in, in, like that. Uh, I think if you're respectful and, and if you're actually, tr- you know, believe it or not, I, I'm actually a pretty good coach. Because uh, because once I start doing that, I, I, I'm really talking to them. You know, I'm from the old Jimmy Hoff, Cincinnati Reds. Uh, I, mean, I still got Jimmy Hoff's, the old uh, Reds player development guy, his playbook. And I, and I use the same plays for the last 40 years. They still work. They're still great. I still use the same signs. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think they do. And like I said, I've, I've coached pro. You know, I've, I've worked, I work with Votto and the Bruces of the world. And, and I went to IMG Academy down here. had First and second round guys, and you know, high elite high school players, and I then went and coached D one college ball. Yeah, they, they want to be coached. Uh, it's different. I mean, you got to adjust. Like I said, I'm 61 years old. I mean, I got to know who uh, Rihanna is. I got to know who uh, all this <laughs> stuff is. It doesn't mean I do Twitter or, or any of that kind of nonsense. But uh, you, you still have to be aware and uh, tr- try to relate in their terms. Uh, but as long as, as long as they think that you're trying to help them be, become a better player, uh, I, I think they're positive. Uh, and I, you know, like you said, I am I am short and blunt, and sometimes that's caused me problems in my life. Uh, but but I think it's honest. And I, like I said, why uh, why pussy around the the bush? You know, just get yeah. right to the point. And uh, you know, that's all I wanted as a player. You know, either tell me I stink or tell me I'm good. Either or. If I stink, I'll try to get better. If I'm good, I'll try to get better. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree with Huggins. You know, he's shit, he's, he's older than me, I'm sure. So, uh, trying to make him get better. And uh, and you got to watch yourself a little bit as far as your language and stuff like that. Kids aren't – it's not the same world as it was when I was playing. Trust mm-hmm. me. Some of the coaches I had – in hockey and in baseball 40, 45 years ago, would probably be in jail now the way the world is. But, uh, yeah, you, you got to adjust. You know, uh, my big thing in, in all sports is adjustments. you got to adjust. When you're hitting, it's, it's not adjusting game to game. It's adjusting pitch to pitch, you know, depending on what this guy has and, and what you have that day. You know, hitting-wise, you, you don't have the same bat speed every day. It's just the way it is. So you got to go with what you got. In golf, you don't have the same swing every day. You know, if I normally hit a little little draw, and today it's not drawn as much, it's sort of going a little straight, maybe a little right. You got to adjust. I got you got to go with that today. So uh, I enjoy coaching the, uh, the young guys uh, now. Uh, it sort of gives you a, a thrill because I can't play anymore. I can't run. I can't slide. Uh, but you can teach those guys to do that and try to do it the right way. Uh, even though we, we didn't have good teams in college, uh, I was proud of the way they played. And uh, and uh, they all tried hard, and they all tried to listen to what we were trying to do, and, uh, trying to do, and they all got better. You know, did they get, become good enough to be a pro player? No, but from the time they entered the program to the time they, they exited, they got better. And as a coach, that's all you that's all you can hope for, trying to get everybody a little bit better. Well, I, I liked your comments, Chris, when you talked about. Um, you know, while you were still in the middle of that whole relaunching of the Akron uh, baseball program, and I don't think anybody has any idea except for a guy like you and a few others that have been through it, on what that's got to be like to try and 
literally start up and find players and a bunch of walk-on guys and tryouts and all that sort of stuff. But, but I liked your comments uh, very much, and Coach Huggins uh, said a lot of the same, and there are a lot of coaches that certainly feel this way. Not all of them, but I think overwhelming majority, most of them. You talked about how you felt it was also your responsibility to ultimately make them not only better players, but one day better people, better husbands, better dads. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like I said, Barry Bonds is by far the best player I've ever seen. It's not, to me, it's not even close. Uh, you can t- you can say it whatever you want about whatever, uh, but he was awesome. I used to, he was awesome to watch, best player. Uh, but even him, Babe Ruth, you know, by the time they're forty years old, they're done, and and hopefully you're gonna have another 30, 40 years of life left. What what, what you know? There's more to life than that. So I mean, you got to be a good guy. You you, you got to try to teach these these kids stuff besides baseball. You know, I, I think sports is a good avenue to teach life lessons. And uh, you, gotta, you gotta teach them, you know, hey, you, you don't, don't treat people like that. Now, why are you yelling at that guy? If that guy says hello, say, say hello. You know, it's, it's common courtesy. So yeah, I agree. Uh, you teach them baseball, but in the, but in the same sense, you, you try to teach them how to live their life a little bit, how, how to be responsible. I, I think that's the biggest thing, responsibility. You know, hey, I, I've screwed up with the best of them. Uh, made terrible mistakes in my life. But, you know, but you learn from them. You know, that's what my dad and my parents used to say. You, you're going to make mistakes. I, I'm a very spiritual guy. I mean, you know, you, you're going to make mistakes. But that's what forgiveness is, is mm-hmm. all about. So uh, I, I believe that wholeheartedly. So, yeah, when I teach, uh, it's not only about baseball. It's not about hitting and fielding and how to slide properly, how to take a lead off. Uh, it's also, hey, what, what are you going to do out the field? You know, like an old grizzled minor league coach I, I had a long time ago. Nothing good happens after midnight, so get your ass back in bed. So uh, <laughs> I, used to, I used to tell kids that all the time. Well, what the hell are you out, out at 2 o'clock in the morning for? Get your ass back in bed. That's when all the bad stuff happens. I wish my dad would have told me that. Uh, well, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. We're all guilty of that at some point. Well, there, there's no doubt about it. Um, you know, when you left Akron um, uh, just a year ago, you know, I, I've always felt like, and look, I, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I, I've always felt like there are certain guys by their approach, and we've heard a lot about your approach and, and your mental makeup and that kind of thing. And look, I don't work for the Reds anymore, so I'm not beholden to anybody down there uh, anymore. They're not signing a paycheck. But I always saw it even the years I was working there and the years I was working for somebody else. There are certain guys that should be working inside of certain franchises. You called this place your home for a long, long time. Now you're down in Florida, and that, that's, that's awesome. But, uh, you know, if, if the situation presented itself, w- w- would you be open to once again putting on a, a Reds uniform at some level and, and getting back out there and coaching again because you have so much to still give back? Oh, well, I mean, uh, yeah. Honestly, I mean, I, I, I've asked the Reds for – over a decade to come back and, and I, I don't want to be in the big leagues. I, I want to work with player development. That, that's the key to making this franchise. I mean, it, it still upsets me that, 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 that the franchise is, is doing what they're doing. Uh, it's the oldest franchise. It's, it's every bit as historic as the Yankees. 
or as the Dodgers, or the heated rival when I was, I was, I was playing. Uh, and I, I wanted them to get back there. You know, and then, you know I was with uh, the general manager, Nick Crawl uh, on the caravan. And, you know, I was asked that many a time on, on, the, uh, on the caravan by the fans and stuff, you know, how come you're not uh, in the organization helping out? And I go, it's not for lack of trying, believe me. Uh, but they have their, you know, they have their own way of doing things, and that's fine. Uh, but I think I would have a lot to offer. Uh, I'm not irrelevant. I, I've been coaching young kids for the last 10, 10 years, 10, 12 years. Uh, so it's, it's not that. And I'm in good shape at 61. I still throw batting practice for hours and fungos and all that kind of good stuff. But, yeah, to answer your question, I would love to be in player development trying to help this organization get back to not only the playoffs, but, but getting back to the World Series and winning another one. I mean, it's approaching one of the longest droughts in Reds history as far as uh, winning a World Series. Uh, I mean, it's got to be close. You know, it's been 30, 33 years. So uh, I would love to do that uh, one more time. Uh, really, the Reds organization is the only organization I'd probably do this with at this point in my life because I, I have a deep uh, feeling in my heart for, for that organization. Uh, I mean, I've been approached even since I retired in June by uh, a few organizations and and that kind of stuff about doing uh, some baseball stuff. And I said, no, nah, it's not really the time yet. But if the Reds approach me, sure, I'd love to do it. And I'm easy. I mean, I, I, I want to work with the with the young guys. So so when, when when they come up through the organization, they're ready to go. It, it shouldn't ha you shouldn't have to wait till they get to the big leagues to know what the hell you're doing. You know, and I, I bring up Jimmy Hoff, his name name a lot because he meant a lot to us. He he taught everyone when I was coming up the Reds way, and uh, it was a special way, special plays. You know, we we do cutoffs this way, we field bunts this way, uh, we lead off bases this way, uh, we wear a uniform a certain way. Uh, and I always bring him up because he had a, a great effect. He just passed away a couple years ago. But uh, he had a great effect on me. And uh, and uh, like I told Nick, I, I, I told him straight up, I mean, yeah, I mean, it all starts with player development. There's no reason in hell that Cleveland and Tampa Bay can have the type of program they have and the Reds don't. St. Louis, come on. You know, we're, we're better than that. And uh, I believe that wholeheartedly. And uh, I mean, Nick, Nick said some good stuff on the caravan, and I go, I hope, I hope it works out. Uh, you know, and Annie, my daughter's working for the Reds as far as for a TV girl. Uh, so you know, for her sake, it's more fun uh, telecasting when the team's doing well than we're doing bad. So uh, that's a long way of saying yes. I, I would love to do it, but I, I'm, I'm almost to the point. I, I really don't ask anymore. I, I've done that for years. And uh, you pretty much get to run around. And uh, so, uh, now this is my fourth time retiring uh, in various aspects of my life. Uh, I'm enjoying golf, you know, but I, you know, it's getting baseball season and I am getting the itch to do stuff. So, uh, you know, I might have to go do some private lessons or something around here with some of my buddies so I can start throwing batting practice and hit some fungos again. When, um, when you look at the state of baseball, Chris, and I'm curious, uh, you know, and, and, and look, um, I, I'm not a fan of the whole sabermetrics thing. And, and, and 
you know, I understand a lot of information is a really good thing, but, you know, if a guy hits a ball and his exit velocity is 120 miles an hour, but it's caught in center field for an out, I'd rather have the guy that just hit the ball 90 miles an hour that floats one a jam shot over the third baseman said for a base hit. Okay, end of story for me. Now, everybody might feel differently about that. Um, but do you think what's – your, what's your feeling about the whole movement and evolution of the game and being largely centered on sabermetrics? Well, I mean, I think that's a tool. It, it just can't be the only tool. Hey, le- hey listen, if, if I'm managing and, and, and you, give me, you give me some stats and all that kind of stuff, that, hey, this guy hits the ball – this way, 80% of the time on the ground. Yeah, I mean, that, that's good information. Uh, but but, but he, all this exit velocity and stuff like that, that's all good. But I used to tell, you know, big leaguers, it's fine. I mean, they, they have the supreme talent, you know. Now, my kids, like in high school and college, I mean, they're, they're trying to hit the ball like, like the big leaguers. Oh, my exit velocity is this way. And they hit the ball in the air. And, and to your point, they hit the ball in the air and it goes to the warning track. It, it doesn't work. You know, you can only hit the ball in the air if you can do two things. You can hit the ball over the outfielder's head and hit it over the fence. Those are the two things. If you're incapable of hitting the ball in the air and doing any of those two things, you shouldn't be hitting the ball in the air. You should be hitting the ball on the ground, hitting line drives. Now, I'm not the biggest guy. I, you know, I could hit a home run here and there. But uh, I was always taught, that just hit the ball hard. Don't, don't try to lift it. Don't try to do anything. Now, when I was playing, it was a line drive. Try to hit a hard line drive. If you got under a little bit, it could go out. If you got on top of it a little bit, you hit a hard ground ball. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think uh, sabermetrics and all that analytics stuff is good. It's not the end all. It's not the end all. I mean, baseball is played in actual dirt, grass, heat, rain, cold, and uh, it's all – it's all relative of what's going on at that particular time. Like I said earlier, you know, guys don't feel the same. I could be 0 for 20 against David Cohn, but I could be feeling great that day, and Cohn could be off a little bit. All of a sudden, that 0 for 20 doesn't mean anything because he's horseshit and I'm feeling good. I get a couple hits. You know, So I, I think all that stuff is just a tool. You, you analyze it, and you use it the best of your ability, but... Eventually, it comes down to mano a mano, guy against guy. And uh, all those stats in the world, I mean, you know, they all make mistakes. No one's per- They're not robots out there. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're not playing on a computer. They're out there. Garrett Cole is going to hang a slider one of these times. Trust me. And that's, that's the ball you jump on. Now, if he throws that slider the way he's supposed to, you're toast. But, you know, I have enough experience to know he ain't that good. He's going to hang a couple. And those are the ones you, you capitalize on. Um, you have a son-in-law that is a uh, professional golfer trying to get his way to the point uh, of getting on the PGA Tour. I have to believe, and maybe I'm a 1,000% wrong, I have no idea. I mean, you're able to get out and play with him. You may not be able to play as well as him, obviously. But I would imagine that it would probably be a smart idea uh, for him to lean on you a little bit more on, on, on the mental part of the game. Does he do that? Well, he, he is on the PGA Tour. He, okay, he, I beg your pardon. Not. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he's actually uh, he's, he's in the field this week at the Honda Classic down here in, uh, in West Palm in Florida. 
So I, I know Annie and his dad's caddying for him. His dad, Jim, his name's Kevin Roy. His dad's name's Jim Roy. And uh, Kevin, yeah, he's, he's, I played with him many times. He's got all the tools. Uh, I played with uh, a lot of PGA guys and uh, he's good enough to make it. But again, it's, it's just like baseball. You know, once you get to the major leagues, everybody can play. Everybody's good. So, so how do you separate yourself? And, and to your point, I, I believe it is mental, uh, mentally tough, being able to handle the adversity, be able to hap, uh, handle the bad times as well as the good times. That's, that's, a, that's a science too, handling the, the uh, good times. Uh, but yeah, uh, I, I think I'm a good guy for mental, uh, but I don't stick my nose into where it's not wanted or where it's not asked. Now, if, now if Kevin uh, would ask me about some stuff, I'd, I'd be more than willing to get, give my opinion. But I, I'm sort of old school in the way. I'm just not gonna. First of all, he's not my parent. He's my mm -hmm. he's my son-in-law. Uh, he's not my son. He's my son-in-law. And uh, and I've told Annie, I go, hey, if you ever want to talk mentally, you know, even though I never played golf at his level, uh, I did play sports at a high level in a few sports and. Uh, I, I know the importance of the mental aspect because all those guys are good. I mean, the difference between him and Rory McIlroy isn't, isn't much. It's just a sliver. And, and what's the difference? You know, if all things are equal, you work out, you practice, it, it's the mental, the, the mental aspect. You know, how do you handle it? You know, how do you handle, you know, well, all of a sudden you're, you're five under after seven holes. Uh, you, you know, the good players keep going, try to make 500, 10 under, you know, or just 500. Once you get the 500, you, you, you get, you get nervous. And all of a sudden you turn the 500 into 200, you know, you, you, you turn a potential great round into a, a good round, you know, but, but the, the really play, the players that make, make it out there, just keep the, the, the you know, when it's going good, you, you keep it going. You know, I remember talking to Carl Yastrzemski, the great uh, baseball player for the Red Sox for years. And, uh, and he used to talk about waves. Baseball, you're hitting, you're always, you're in waves. You're at the bottom of a wave or you're on the top of the wave surfing. And once you're on top, you got to ride that all the way to the beach. You know, ride that wave as far as you can because eventually you're going to fall off and, and hit, the, hit the skids. So uh, I think you can use that analogy for any sport. Once you're playing good, take advantage of it. Try to get as low as possible and uh, do that. He hasn't come to me yet. Uh, but if he does, I'd be more than happy to talk to him. Uh, lastly, uh, you're, you're, you mentioned your daughter, Annie, and, and uh, she has just done, and, and I don't say this because you're on the show. I was talking about this with Brandon Seho and, and, and Paul Fritchner and Casey McAllister about this. What, what a great job she has done, but she's earned her stripes. You know, when I had a chance to talk to her a year ago, you know, she's busting her tail with a Big Ten network. She was doing some stuff down there in Florida uh, and, and all that kind of thing. Uh, it's got to be really cool for you uh, to see her doing what she's doing now and especially doing it uh, with the Cincinnati Reds. Oh, yeah. I'm, you know, like, like you said, you know, uh, obviously you're in the business. Uh, it's very competitive, just like sports. It's very tough. And it's very tough to get from the minor leagues to the, to the major leagues in broadcasting. So, uh, yeah, she's paid her dues. I mean, she's been in Corpus Christi. She's been all over the place trying to follow her dreams. She's always wanted to do this. And uh, I think she's pretty good. You know, like anything else, you got you to keep getting better. And uh, I think it's a great opportunity uh, 
for her with the Reds. I mean, she grew up in Cincinnati. She went to school in Cincinnati, high school. Uh, so she is a Cincinnati girl. So uh, she loves the Reds. And uh, she's just she's fortunate to have this gig. And uh, I'm just waiting for her to get her schedule so uh, me and Susan can plan our times when we're going to go up and, and see her and see my mom up in Cincinnati. And uh, But she does good. But uh, like you said, as you know, she works hard. She yep. tries to prepare the best she can. She's a hard worker, uh, always trying to improve. And uh, but it, it's tough. It's a, it's a tough business. So uh, you know, I've talked to her quite a bit about the mental side of stuff, and you know, because uh, it can be, as you know, it, it can be a brutal business. It's it's brutal. Well, there's no doubt about that. But uh, Chris, I tell you, man, I, th th this has been uh, just fantastic having you uh, on the show. And, and, and I know so many Reds fans that are in on this chat while we're doing this show are, are just so excited to have you. And, and everybody would love to see you back. Uh, nobody more than me uh, growing up a Reds fan. Nobody would, would be happier to see you back in some form or fashion uh, working with the Cincinnati Reds again. And, and hopefully if uh, you, when you get into town this summer, Hopefully we'll have a chance to catch up and say hello in person. Can't thank you enough for your time today, man. All right, Tom. Yeah, I'll definitely contact you. Maybe we'll go out and get a hamburger or something. That'd be great. I'm all in. Chris, all the best, man. Tell Susan and the kids hello, all right? All right. Thank you. All right. Chris Saba. Boy, how good was that? You know, it gets me mad, though. I got to tell you. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, and I said this long before he came on this show today. It just infuriates me that a guy, look, if he was a guy who was a great major league player and he had a really good major league career, if he was a guy that was a really good baseball player, but he had gotten away from the game, he wants to come back and do a little something for your franchise, whatever it might be, and you can make it all work out, you know, that, that, that's fine. But when you're talking about a guy who... His background, his mental makeup, the way he played the game, okay? The way he excelled at the game, the way he then went all the way down to the lowest levels of the minor leagues. You know, it's a big league guy. And going all the way down to the minor leagues and willing to put himself out there and show up for work every single day, hours and hours and hours. And the amount of hours... Those coaches at the big league level, minor league level, the hours they work are just, they're indescribable. But especially at the minor leagues because of the travel, the bus rides, all that kind of stuff. How in the world, when you have a guy that has been willing to do that, that has been willing to coach summer collegiate baseball, a guy who's been willing to coach high school baseball, a guy who walks in the door in Akron, Ohio in January and says, well, we better find a way to field a baseball team and relaunch this program. How in the world do you not have that guy working in your minor league system? It infuriates me. That is the kind of guy, if he'd have played for the St. Louis Cardinals, he would be working for the St. Louis Cardinals. If he'd have worked for, played for the Dodgers, he'd be working for the Dodgers. If he would have played for the Yankees, he'd be working for the Yankees. If he'd have played for the Red Sox, he'd be working for the Red Sox. And for the Reds to not have this guy in their organization working at some capacity in player development, especially when he wants to do it, 
That right there is an indictment on where the Reds franchise is, in my opinion. Why do you think it is that they won't bring it back? I have no idea. I wasn't going to ask him. It's not my place. Uh, And maybe he wouldn't want to get into it. I don't know. Um, If I were a betting man, I would bet that, you know, and you said he thinks that young people like to be coached and like being told like it is. He would know he's down there all the time. But he also did say, if you paid attention there, it's very different now than it used to be. And most franchises want guys that are continually, you know, patting the guy on the back, give him a little tap on the fanny. Come on now, let's go try hard. Let's go try really hard today. And then when a guy's 0 for 15 and he's carrying, you can go over 15. Everybody goes over 15. Joey Vada goes 0 for 15. Tony Gwynn went 0 for 15. Barry Bonds went 0 for 15. But those guys would carry, not carry the bat into the field. So if all of a sudden you see a guy that's carrying his 0 for 15 and he's kicking balls all over the infield or the outfield because he's more worried about what he's doing at the plate or not doing at the plate than what he's doing in the field, and you got to say something to him about, ooh, ooh, ooh. If I were a betting man, that's what I'm betting on. Could be wrong. All right, let's, um, let's take a break, and we're going to come back, talk a little bit about that interview, and then uh, talk a little bit more about the Xavier Musketeers and the UC Bearcats who played later tonight as well. Hope you enjoyed that. I really enjoyed it. Ham and Eggers, take it away. It's that type of the show, the Ham and Eggers. These guys are great. Trust me, I would know. I introduce all the best segments. So, out of that whole interview, I know we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but I couldn't help but think when he was talking about wanting to be a part of the organization, about where the Bengals were a couple years ago without having a ring of honor. And it's just, it seems like it's just a Cincinnati thing almost at this point where we just, like the logical thing or the, the fan perspective is there and people are wanting to, to make good and do th- like the right thing for the organizations. Um, I think it'd be a smart decision for the Reds to, to hire him on. I think he brings a, a good mentality. He would tell how it is. We would get some of these guys straightened out. I just couldn't help but feel like the, that Cincinnati has been in this place for so long now that it just, we're just seeing its ugly head time and time again. Oh, we saw that graphic posted yesterday that it's been 10,000 days since the Reds advanced in the postseason. And you just go back and forth to what the Reds need to do now at this point to turn things around, to get yourself to a point where you're competing for postseason um, success, right? I'm not even going to sit here and say competing for World Series titles. I'm going to sit here and say competing for postseason success because right now that's the goal. That's everything that the Reds are trying to do right now. That's the position the Reds are in is building again. They rebuilt. The Reds rebuilt for 2020. They didn't score a run in the postseason. They played two games in a shortened season. They tore it all down. Now here we are again. Back at square one. Kind of. Ellie De La Cruz. There's, there's, I, I think square one was last year. There's... 
there is – I don't think we're at maybe – we're maybe not at the bottom. But the Reds are, are fairly close to the bottom after bottoming out. Now, there is an argument to be made that they could bottom out this year, that this year could be the bottom out. But at the same time, when I do think we will see a guy like Ellie De La Cruz this year who is tracking to be a generational-type player for the Reds, now you start to have some some light at the end of the tunnel. But again, it goes back to what you say, Casey, where you just have to hope that there is hope somewhere. And, you know, I, I still can't get over the fact, too. I mean, he was saying... And this is a former Reds player that the fans know and love. And he was saying things like, we're the Reds. We're one of the oldest franchises out there. We should be competing every year. We're like the Yankees. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. We should be. Why aren't we? It's, I know there's a lot of... Uh, Pointing, finger pointing that can be had there as to why we're not there. But this organization, it, it needs to step up. And it needs to step up soon. T Tom, did the Reds bottom out last year? Is Ellie De La Cruz and the rest of these uh, Reds players that are on the upswing going to provide a lift that the bottom out was last year? Or do you think that this year is the low point? projecting to the future. good question um you know i i, I it, you know, a couple things at work let, let me start by saying i have never been one of these guys who gets wrapped up in the rankings of the farm system and players i never have never have and i'll just use our our, our most recent guest chris sabo now i'm sure there's somewhere we could go dig up um you know baseball america or something like that going all the way back to the the mid 80s when that whole group was coming up together. But look, um, if you just look at that group of players, and we kid around a lot with Tracy Jones on this show. Tracy Jones was the best hitter of that entire group of players that came up together at the same time for the Reds. He was a number three hole hitter, and that's where you put your best hitter. He was a number three hole hitter of that whole group. Sabo. Cal, I mean, Cal Daniels, you talk about a guy that just, I mean, could absolutely rake. That guy could hit. And Eric Davis and Barry Larkin and Paul O'Neill. The point I'm making here is, if you were to go back and look at, say, Baseball America's top 100 prospects from that particular year, okay, there's no way all seven or eight of those Reds players would have been ranked probably in their top 100. At that point in time, I think he had 28 major league teams. Yeah, because this was long before the 93 expansion with the Marlins and the Rockies and then later with the Diamondbacks and, and uh, Tampa Bay. But um, I've never put a lot of stock in that. So when I start hearing about De La Cruz and these guys, it, I, I'm a show-me guy. Let's find out. Not at single A, not at double A, not at triple A. Not a lot of different things you can use to gauge their tools and all that kind of thing. And, and I'm interested in those kinds of things. Is the guy putting the bat on the ball? Is he striking out a lot? Does he walk a little bit? What's his defense like? What's his speed like? What's his throwing arm like? All those kinds of things. Okay, 
But until they actually walk in the big leagues, nobody would have had Sabo on that list. He had been five years in the minor leagues as a college guy. So now he's 27 years old, 26 years old, walking in the big leagues, right? So, you know, and he ends up being the rookie of the year. And, you know, everybody talks about Billy Hatcher in that World Series, and rightfully so, because he broke the all-time record of, you know, consecutive plate appearances with a hit to start a World Series. But Sabo was, was arguably, along with Hatcher, was the best player on the field in that World Series. And nobody would have saw that coming. So that's a long way of starting to answer your question. I'll believe it when I see it. The other thing that, that makes me wonder if this year potentially doesn't have a chance to quote-unquote bottom out is this. Everybody is so uh, zeroed in on the number of innings a pitcher pitches as they progress through the minor leagues or more accurately from one year to the next, whether it's the minor league level, going to the big leagues, big league level first year compared to second year. There is no doubt about it. The Green and Lodolo and Ashcraft all have a chance to be outstanding, if not great, major league pitchers. They have the ability to do it. But for this year, I think you're going to see because of time missed last year with all of those guys due to injuries, I think you're going to see them have to leave games when it's right at that point in time where you have a chance to win a game or lose a game, right? And now you're turning it over to the bullpen. They say the bullpen's going to be better this year. Again, show me. We'll find out. So, you know, uh, offensively, they just look like, put it this way, their opening day lineup offensively this year. Now, the lineup may look very different by June the 1st. Maybe earlier than that. But I think offensively, the lineup they're going to put on the field this year is not going to be nearly as potent as the offensive team they put on the field last year. It's going to more resemble the offensive team they put on the field in August and September of last year when they were among the worst hitting teams in Major League Baseball. I mean, Tommy Pham was a good player, right? I mean, he scared you a little bit, right? Yeah. The kid they traded to San Diego, same thing. I mean, he had a nice renaissance year, played really, really well. I don't know if they have two guys you're going to put up kind of numbers like those two guys put up. Uh, they may not have been great, but, but they were pretty good. Um, so, you know, I guess, I guess we'll wait and see. What do you think? You think they bought him out last year or this year? I do. No, I think it was last year. I, I really do. I think that they – I'm not going to sit here and say that they're going to compete for the postseason this year or anything like that. But I really do think that last year – it's hard for me to see it getting any worse than last year. I really do. Because if you think, if you think back to how the year started and then how they, they, how they went through the dog days of summer, but then really – didn't play all that well down the stretch at all. I just have a hard time thinking that it gets worse than it did last year. With the with what's on the horizon, with the pitching at least being serviceable, you got to think they win more than they did last year, right? And in that case, it didn't bottom out. Or it did, I guess, already. This is my point. Yep. I, I just have a hard time thinking they lose more this year than last year. Well, I mean, it's damn near impossible. Right? 
Yeah, I mean, here's here's my thought is if we're going to do a comparison to anything, I'm going to do it locally. Um, the Bengals went 2-14 and 14 with Zach Taylor the very first year, yep. and they bottomed out, right? I mean, people wanted him could fired. Have, couldn't have gotten any worse. Yep. The next year, we saw a lot of good progress. Well, next year they draft Burrow. They drafted Burrow. And the way I'm going to compare it is that we've got a lot of good prospects, and I know you're a show-me guy. I think they're going to show. I really do. I think that they can show. they got to hit on one of these guys at some point. They can't just keep drawing blanks. Well. And if, if they start to progress – I do. I can see a a point where there is hope, and I think that's the the point. Is that last year there's no hope. I think this year I we're think, gonna see hope. I think there is hope. I think you're spot on, Casey. I okay. think there. I think there is. It's not gonna come to fruition this year, but I do think that last year was was the worst that it in this iteration of a rebuild. Because that's what I was saying when you were out, Tom. When you were when you were when you stepped out when we took a break was. It just felt so weird to rebuild, 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 to then in 2020 not even score a run in the postseason, tear it all down, start over again. When in 2021, they were competitive. There's no doubt about it. And then now this. To be a year and a half removed from – because think about it. Going into 2021, they were they were a couple of pieces away from a weakened NL Central. They were a couple of pieces away from probably competing for a division title. And they said, nah, you know what? Tear it all down. We're going to restart. Yeah. What? Why do you need to restart? You were right there. You had Joey Votto. What are we doing? That's where you get frustrated. That's yep. where you lose fans. Yeah. I guess the real question is, where, where does the true change need to happen? Is it players? Is it management? Is it ownership? I think that's where the the struggle is right now because I think a lot of people feel like maybe it's the ownership that yep. needs to change. Maybe it's the money that's just not there yep. that we desperately need to compete. I think I think we see improvement though this year. I really do. I can't see how they would only win what sixty two games, sixty three games, have a hundred loss season. I just can't see that. Um, my guess is that. We see some change early this season. We're not going to see a a replication of last season where they were what three and twenty one yep. to start the season. Played well in Atlanta. I think I think they're a little bit more competitive than that. Uh, I'm not going to say they're going to be positive after thirty games, but it's not going to be a single digit win column. I, I just can't see that. No, I, I, yeah. It, it, again, you talk about damn near impossible. It's damn near impossible to go three and twenty-two. I think it was again, yeah. right, or three and twenty-one, whatever. It, it, it's almost impossible. Um, but everybody has opinions on here, and um, and 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 we certainly uh, love every single one of them. All right, we only had about uh, twelve minutes left in the program. I want to hit a couple of things, Paul. The first thing I want to talk about is well, wait, in the monologue, I'm a Mac guy. <laughs> a Mac guy. The Ohio University wins its sixth in a row last night. Don't look now, but here come the Bobcats. 17 wins on the year now. 
And Miami of Ohio got a nice win last night. Yeah. Travis Steele, so good for them. So I failed to mention that. First time this year, Miami's won back-to-back – or second time this year, Miami's won back-to-back Good for them. First time in the MAC. Good for them. Good for Travis Steele. Good dude. Yep. Um, okay. Um, when is Zach Fremantle going to be back? That's the question. So initially when he got hurt, the optimism was next week at Providence. That's a Wednesday night game uh, out in Rhode Island at Providence. That was the optimism. I'm personally, I don't know anything different than what Sean Miller said last week when he gave his update. I'm just hoping that this is something for Zach that he gets back by the first round of the Big East tournament. I just, reading the tea leaves, know how a lot of these lingering issues work. Um, where you hope that he comes back early. Eh, well, maybe. Is he still walking around in a boot? He still has the boot on. All right. So he didn't need surgery or anything like that. Right, right. But I'm just purely going based off of what I heard last week in, the, in Sean's press conference where he talked about his injury. I would, I would like to see Fremantle come back for that Butler game, ne- not this coming Saturday, but the next Saturday, um, which is the last game of the regular season, get 10 minutes under his belt, kind of try to ease back into it because if you come back think about this you're at a point now with Xavier where you are looking square in the eye of playing UConn at 2:30 on Thursday afternoon at Madison Square Garden which is not where you want to be I know you've beaten UConn twice this year you're 2 and 0 against them but to ask them to go 3 and 0 against them in front of 20,000 UConn fans is a tough task uh you got to have Zach back by that point so we'll see. Uh, I, I think that there was still optimism that he'd come back for Providence. Maybe he does. Maybe this week is a good week for him. Maybe he comes back, but um, we'll see going forward. Uh, Bob asks, well, you know what? I, I don't want to get to that. Was there anything else? Is that, no, no, no. I, I was just curious. Were you talking about the Miami of Florida thing? Oh, that was Brian. Um, we can get to that, too. No, what did Bob? Go, Bob asked, do you think the Butler Bulldogs will rebound next year with Thad Mata in, in his second year? I don't know. Butler has a lot of Butler has a lot of big issues that they got to overcome. I mean, just fundamentally, like recruiting-wise, facility-wise, um, funding, things like that. Like, Butler is Butler's not in a great spot overall. Um, I just... I kind of just question the direction of Butler's program overall and where they're going and what they're going to be able to do here in in the near future. Um, I I don't, I would like to know whether Thad Mata is back here for three or four years to get the program back on track and then hand it off to a successor, or if this is something where he wants to coach in the long term. Right. I don't know, but he's had a lot of health issues and it kind of came off to me when they hired him as all right, Butler's really off the rails here. Let's get things settled. Let's get things back on track. And then I'll hand it off to somebody that knows what they're doing in one recruiting cycle, three, four years. But is that long enough to turn this around? I mean, they are really – they lose to Georgetown at home over the weekend. They are really, really bad. Um, they're really bad. And they they need somebody – The Butler needs somebody that when dad goes that will really energize the program or else – I don't know. It could, could be a long few years. And then Brian asks about Miami of Florida in the non-conference, probably because I had talked about Miami 
uh, you know, what are they going to do given the ACC, the, the the status of the ACC? Miami does have a 10-point win over Providence. That was back on a neutral floor earlier in the season. That was only their fourth game of the year. They have a nice win over UCF. UCF's not playing badly. Um, they're they're a, a good win. Uh, and Rutgers, too. Yep. So those are three out-of-conference wins for Miami that you could look back on. Rutgers is having a nice year. And like I said, UCF, UCF's not going to make the tournament probably, but they are a uh, – yeah, I mean, they could win the – but anyway, that the, that's Miami's out-of-conference schedule. Providence playing a lot different now than they did back then. That was Yeah, and they got jobbed the first time at Duke. I watched some of that game in the second half. I mean, they, they got jobbed. Yeah. And when Duke came down to their place, they blew them out of the gym. They've also beaten Virginia this year. So, I mean, look, they that guy can coach, and they got good players. Laranega. You know what, Laranega? You remember where he's from? Fighting George Mason Patriots. Took them oh, to a yeah, Final yeah. Four well, back in 2006. Yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. George Mason. I grew up about 10 minutes from that campus. There was nothing better than George that Mason. That was in that highbrow elitist neighborhood. Yeah, that's exactly right. There was nothing better than George Mason making that Final Four run. They did it in D.C. They made the Final Four. That regional was in D.C. What a great, uh, what a great run that was living out there back then. It was great. A lot of fun. But, yeah, Laranega, he can coach. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. He can coach. All right. Um... But, yes, yeah, so that's it with Xavier. I, I think that they will be, you know, like I said, like I said earlier, they've lost three games without Fremantle by a combined four points. It's not a collapse. They just need their depth back. That's it. You got UC tonight. We talked about the importance of that game. They still have one more really tough game after Temple tonight. They play against Memphis. So, you know, they could break the tie with Temple tonight. They lose a game. They end up in another tie. And how they figure out that tie break, if you split head-to-head, I don't know. But, Paul, that would be a big difference, obviously, in having to play the first round of the American Conference. If you could get to the top four, you don't play in the first round of the American Conference. They're not going to get top three. No, they're not. But it, it would be a massive, massive deal for uh, Cincinnati if they can get at least that buy. Um, I I look at this in the way that it's kind of setting up right now for um, for Cincinnati, and I'm thinking, what can they do? How can they position themselves to avoid Houston the longest? Yep. Can they avoid Houston? Into the into the championship game, and then maybe hope that Houston gets tripped up somewhere along the way. Because if you end up as the four seed, you do get the buy. You don't have to play in the first round. And if you remember last year, they were the eight seed. They they lost to Houston in the second round. If you get the buy, then you have to play Houston probably on Saturday in the semis instead of avoiding it and going one more round. Um, now, if you get up to the three seed then you would be on the other side of the bracket from Houston and could miss them. Will Cincinnati get up to that three spot? They could. Uh, they would need some help. Right now, Cincinnati's 9-6. and six, Memphis is 10-4. and four, So they would need some help. They have to win that head-to-head game yep. against Memphis. But Cincinnati has to win out, and they'd need some help from Memphis. Um, the other thing, the other flip side of this, which is also on the table is if Cincinnati loses tonight to Temple, that would drop them to fifth. They would still be in that 4-5 That's game. right. What you mean they would be in the bracket of the still the number one seed. Yep. So basically, they, basically they're basically they tracking for that 4-5 game either way. 
But if they were to lose a couple and drop down to sixth, they would have to play the extra game, but they'd be on the opposite now, side of the bracket from There's Houston. No doubt. There's so, no doubt. so it is a weird, like, yeah, you have to play the extra game and you have to win four games in four days. But you're on the other side of the bracket, so there's a give and take there. So it's not – I don't think it's the necessarily the worst thing in the world if you see was to drop the two. The problem is you want to be playing your That's best. Right. You want to be trending in the right direction. You want to be playing good basketball. And playing good basketball means beating Houston – or beating Temple tonight at home, especially after that game on New Year's Day against Temple at Temple, which is one of the worst games of the season. I mean, that was a point where you're looking at Cincinnati and you're thinking – Oh no! What's what's going to happen here? But yeah. So well, go. I always hearken back as we talk about who you're going to play or who you're not going to play. But one of the wisest men to ever walk the planet was quoted as saying a long, long time ago: "You want to be the man, you got to beat the man." You know who said that, Casey? Do you know who said if you want to be the man? You got to beat the man. Please tell, Casey, please tell me. Please tell me you know who this is. This is one of the most legendary figures in the history of sports. Reed Mouse, am I right or wrong? Absolutely. Paul, do you know who I'm talking about? Yes. Trace, do you know who I'm talking about? I think I do, but I, I just looked it I up wouldn't to make put sure, my life on I, it. I, 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 Oh, he used Google. I did. I he just, I had Google. to, I had, I was about to say a name, but I did. Woo! Can we please pull this up on YouTube yes. to be our, unless you have another cherry on top. Do you have another one? No, I, I do not. Okay. Well, then let's go to YouTube where you can find it immediately under the caption to be the man. That's all you got to look up. Okay. That's all you have to look up. In these gator shoes. I didn't Woo! know. Did you did you did you buy into that, Tom? Are you are you a There's uh, no doubt about it. Are you a guy that watches that? Watches. WWE. <laughs> well, you're basically handing over the answer at this point. Well, I, I know, think, but, but I mean you, you, you guys all know who it is. Casey's gonna find out who it is. Uh, no, I'm not. But I do think there are some very wise men, some grizzled veterans. Rick Flair's a wise man, no There's doubt no about doubt about it. Rick. No doubt. Hey, Ric Flair will be going, as many people say, for the final time for the World Heavyweight title. For a man who's won it five times, Rick, how does this extra pressure affect you? Well, what it tells me, Lance Russell, is today, woo, I've got the style and profile like never before. Steamboat, let me go on record as telling the whole world you are the greatest wrestler on the face of this earth. But, pal, today, right here, you got to beat Ric Flair one more time. Remember, Steamboat? And, pal, I'll kiss your boots if you can do it. But to be the man, you got to beat the man. And I'm saying, woo, right here <laughs> in Nashville, Tennessee, pal, I'm the man. Ric Flair and Steamboat. You're gonna be mine! Woo! You've been in an accident, and now the insurance- Boys, does it get any better than that right <laughs> no, there? No, it doesn't. Casey? Ric Flair, Casey. Can I get a Ric Flair? Can I- Woo! Woo! 16-time <laughs> world champ. Nature Boy. The Nature Boy. Do you think he was ad-libbing that? Because it kind of looked like 
He was on, he yeah. for a for a fraction of a second he was scrambling for something to say. Yeah. And then he just picked right back up. I I don't think that was like scripted at all. The whole rant, he didn't really preconceive anything. It just came out fluid and he he let it let one so, of the most iconic sayings of all time no rip doubt right about off the top of the dome. So this is where my my nerdiness of I I don't watch WWE anymore, but I did until a few years ago. And for the longest time when Ric Flair when um, Randy Savage, yeah. Macho Rock, Man, Macho Man, Steve, Steve Austin. When they would do their promos, they would ad lib them. Like they'd have something that they knew they were supposed to say, and then they would just ad lib the rest of it. Now it's all scripted, and that's why people don't like it as much anymore because it feels robotic for these for these promos. But Maybe when you got the Nature Boy Ric Flair just going off the riff, you got to let him shine. Got the Nature Boy to be the man. You got to beat the man. And now we're going to beat it over to um, Fox Lunch today. Fellas, how are we doing today? Everybody all right? You got that tired hat on again. I'm on to baseball season, Tom. The, <laughs> I'm on to baseball season. Villanova beat him down so Damn. bad last night. What? That my man just is, he's, he's thrown in the towel. These Xavier fans crack me what up. What is going on? I want to know, They go Tom, off the deep end, Tom, man. Tom, I mean, Tom. way off the deep end. Tom. As much as I as much as I, I like those two over there, which one has blinders on more? Casey during the Bengals regular season or possibly Paul at this very moment in Xavier basketball? No, history? it is definitely Casey. Yeah, what what how do I have it blinders? is definitely Casey. Well, I will get into no it. I'll get, I'll get into it during you're our show. Mi- you're missing your second best player and they lose by a combined. No, we'll get into I'm it. I'm with you on that, Paul. I mean, I'm with I don't you. Know. I'm yeah, with you. Like I'm with you ridiculous. all the way. I mean, you take the second best player off, pick any team you want. I mean, what's the guy averaging? 17, 18 points a T- game, ten- nine, ten Time out, a game? time out. Tennessee has two starters that they were down the other night at home, and they find a way to beat the number one team in the country that you love the most, and you can't find a way to beat Villanova okay. at home. I mean, come on. At what point do we start Neither talking about Xavier? What time? At what point do we start talking about Xavier as being just, in, in, at, at best, at very best, an average team that's going to make the tournament that at the very best, they might get out of the first weekend, which is a huge accomplishment for them. That's, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's, what is that? That's a wild sentence. Well, at the, at, at, you're basically telling me that they had a chance two weeks ago to win the Big East, to win the whole entire league, yeah. who you could argue is what, the maybe, what would you say the Big East is? The second or third best ranked team? Be, yeah, best second or third. So, Tom, hear me out. This, the, the second best or third best league in the entire country had a team a week and a half ago that had a chance to win the league. It was all right out in front of them. And, and we're sitting here contemplating whether or not that team could possibly make the second weekend, and that's a huge accomplishment somehow now. I mean, at some point, there would be one of the 16 best teams left right. in the tournament. Yeah, that's, what what see, is that? As a Kansas that fan, a you can't wild, I'm not saying it as a Kansas fan. I'm just saying that... At, at what point does Xavier... Dude, a trip to the Sweet 16 is pretty good. It might not saying, be for you know, saying, Kansas or, you know... UNC, Duke. Right. For that's Xavier, a, that's I mean, a heck of an accomplishment. 20% chance they make it to the second weekend. Okay, look, nobody's debating whether or not what their chances are. We talked about the injuries or whatever. But it would be a hell of a year if Xavier made the Sweet 16 this Absolutely. year, I think. How many seats? Okay, that's fair, Tom. Maybe. But let's go through their roster. How many years has Adam Kunkel played in the lineup? Paul would answer that. Three. Three Three-year starter or a three-year player. Yeah. All right. Colby Jones. 
How long has he been in the in the in the in the lineup for? Three. Three year player. Nunji, how long has he been in the lineup for? Two. So you have three guys right there in your starting lineup that are all gone next year, correct? Nunji no. might come back. Kunkel, Colby can come back. Jack can come back. Okay. Sule but but Fremantle's done, right? He can come back too. Oh, now you're talking a little different ballgame. Boom and Kunkel are the only two that. Well, this is all. This is all because of sure COVID. Really. I'm assuming that Colby won't come right? back because he'll get drafted. These are co These are these are COVID kids. Probably. What? Which is fair, but these yeah. are all, they had this has to be because of COVID. You know, well, Nunji had that injury too. Nunji so he's a two year guy. He got two extra years. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like he, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you get a medical red shirt and then you yeah, get yeah. an extra and then year he had the COVID, COVID yeah, year too. Yeah, there are a lot of guys. Yeah, playing Col that, Colby has a COVID that. year yeah. too. Yeah. Okay, fair. Yeah. I just assume that you have three or four guys in that lineup that have been experienced players that could be or possibly going to be gone next year. Oh well, yeah, I mean like, and we're going to see yeah. here. I mean, I, I don't know. It just seems like, and I'm not saying that the whole entire fan base is this way, but. Halfway through the year, this was looked upon as a team, in my opinion, to where you assumed or you made the assertion that it was a high likelihood that they should get to the second weekend. Like over a 50% chance that they well, get to the I think weekend. before Fremantle w was hurt, I think that that was a very safe assumption. Yeah. Right. I, in fact, I think it was an expectation. Yeah. Right. And, and their record at the time would bear that out. Yeah. I mean, so, if, he, if he doesn't so, come back, then like anything's gravy. Right. If he comes back, and he's 100%, and then they lose, then that's a disappointment. That's right. Let so. me play a little quickly devil's advocate to the Xavier thing really fast. When Fremantle was completely healthy, yeah, you talk about all the opportunities that they had lost by a few points, which is completely fair. But just as we did with the Bengals, we neglect the fact that we also won a bunch of games by a few points during the regular season when Fremantle was completely healthy yeah. at home True. against Marquette. They won against, I believe it was... Uh, Creighton yeah, Creighton. Yeah, Georgetown was giving them a ball game up until the very end, which I know that it got a little late lead, but you can't hit, sit here and say that that wasn't a decent they beat, game. They beat Georgetown by 13. But, okay, and, and, and Kansas won by 10 against TCU last night, so or two nights ago, so was that a 10-point game? I'm just saying, in the grand scheme of things, they've played really tight games. They lost to Gonzaga. They've lost to Duke. They've lost to Indiana. These are all three teams that are outside the league. And would you say those three teams are world beaters? Yeah, but they lost to Indiana by one. And yeah, but that, and, was, and but, that, missing, but that was at home. And I mean, Indiana's in fairness, missing. the two best teams they've played, and we talk all the time about the state of college basketball, 90% of the time, whatever it is, if not more, it's all about the home court. Now, last night was an exception in the Big East, Xavier and Creighton losing. But we all know the numbers are what they are. But, you know, and, and Paul and I have gotten into this this year. Two teams that they've played on a neutral floor, and it was early, but two teams they played on a neutral floor that are going to be NCAA tournament teams – they lost to both of them, Gonzaga and Duke. Yeah. Of course, there are a lot of people that are going to lose to Gonzaga and Duke. And, and both of those teams are going to win games in the NCAA tournament. I don't care what anybody says. Yeah. Gonzaga and Duke are going to win games in the NCAA tournament. Yeah. I'll hold you to that. That's a deal. But as we always say, boys, look out for Cal. <laughs> Cal, baby, that's your guy. That is your guy. Cal. I cannot wait. Got it going on. They're playing well. I can't no, wait. For he's the, got it going on. Them and well. the Ohio University Bobcats. I can't wait for the Cal. the Chatterbox Sports Bracket Group. Leader of men. Kentucky Wildcats. Tom Brenneman's NCAA Tournament Champions. Are the Bobbies going to win the MAC? They're going to win the tournament. Kent's, Kent's pretty good. There are, there are two or three really good teams besides them in that conference. They play, you can go right up the road here. Cal has a good. This coming Saturday. 
You going? When OU absolutely bludgeons. What are they called now? They're no longer the – what were they used to be? What they used to be? They're currently the Red Hawks, Tom. The Red Hawks. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Them and my alma mater, the Anderson Redskins. You're, they can't be that anymore now. Raptors. The Raptors. The Raptors. Yeah, that's right. We're still the Bobcats. Roll Bobbies. Roll Bobbies. Time for Box Lunch. Fellas, yep. Casey, Paul, thank you. Thank Let's all go. of you. Thank Chris Sabo. Thank Marty Brenneman. Adios.